Welcome to the Climb! This is a show dedicated to helping singers, songwriters, and indie artists like you create leverage in the music business. That's what you're going to need to get ahead in today's music business. They're not going to sign you. They're not going to give you that pub deal based on potential. They want to see that you have a track record. They want to see that you've already been making it happen, that you have a small business. They're going to buy that small business add some fuel to the fire and make it a bigger business. So leverage is what you're going to need. That's why we called it the climb C L I M B creating leverage in the music business. That's a Baxter name. It's genius. It's from my good friend and co-host, Mr. Brent Baxter. Brent is an award-winning hit songwriter with cuts by Alan Jackson, Randy Travis, Lady Antebellum, Joe Nichols, and more. And he helps songwriters like you turn pro by revealing how you write like a pro, do business like a pro, and then he connects you on the regular with the pros so you can get an at-bat and see where the bar is, see how you're hanging out in there. You can find Brent very easily at songwritingpro.com. Once again, that's songwritingpro.com. And I would like to introduce you to my co-host, Johnny Dwinell. Johnny owns Daredevil Production, and Daredevil has created over 25 national TV opportunities for their indie artists by making them discoverable. They've also created multiple tour opportunities, and through the power of digital marketing data, 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 they've attracted a number of investors for their artists, and the investors are the money folks, and the money folks like the numbers because the numbers don't lie because the numbers can't talk. You can find Johnny at daredevilproduction.com. That's production, singular, no S, and there is no S because there is no other Johnny D. How you doing, brother? Man, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, my feelings are a little bit hurt because of a review, but we'll get to that. Yeah, but I know we got lamb basted, but as terrible as it was, I love basted. He gave lamb. us two stars mm. instead of one because uh, the content is that good. You think so? I think that was it. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> well, hey, I'm super stoked today because we've got a special guest we're going to interview on the air. We're going to interview Mr. Chris Mara, who owns this really cool recording studio in, I want to call it like a space in Nashville called Welcome to 1979. We're going to get into that in a second here. But before we do that, we're going to get into take care of some business here. It's a digital world and this plays right into Chris's facility here. It's, it's a digital world and it's still an important role for physical media in today's lives in the, in the business and the cash flow of today's independent musician. Digital royalty payments are so small that selling products like CD or a vinyl or t-shirts at gigs has become an important income generator. Income generator is a really nice way for saying how you're going to put money in the gas tank to get to the next town to play. Hey, man. <laughs> like income generator or survival tool? I don't know. Like you tell me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, for every CD you sell at a gig, you need roughly like three thousand streams to make the same amount of money so hey we love streaming you know when you're an artist and you get paid for it that's great but you're gonna need three thousand of them to equal one cd sale from your merch table so i'm an all the above kind of guy yeah do both but man yeah do both don't forget about the physical merch at your table that can add up really fast so and our friends at disc makers are the place to go for your disc and other physical media including vinyl usb drives and even t-shirts and you can find the fine folks at Disc Makers at www.discmakers.com or give them a call at 800-468-9353. That's 800-468-9353. Yeah, not for nothing. This is a good time just to bring up that quick story with Lonely Highway, who had been playing 
for years as a bar band down in Jacksonville that we're working with. And we brought them up here to Nashville. They've been out of the market for four or five months. So that's, this part of the story is significant. But when we sent them back home, I tripled their money because they were out of the market. And granted, they were playing every weekend for, I don't know, four or five years. Mm-hmm. And so they had a nice little draw, but they were definitely overexposed in the market. But when we sent them down, we sent them with 144 t-shirts. Why? Because that was where the price break was. And they sold out in two nights. They did two nights, one in their hometown bar, one in this other bar that they play. They sold out the t-shirts at 20 bucks a pop, I think, or 25. I mean, the the gross that they made that weekend for a local band was like 7,200 bucks, two shows. It's not too bad. Not too bad at all. Get the vinyl, get the shirts, get all that stuff. So uh, if you haven't joined the climb community already, please do so. This is active community. This is not your normal Facebook group where everybody's just shouting at the wall or the last week when you went and visited, there was the same posts as this week because there's nothing going on. Right. Uh, we, got, we got regular stuff happening here. What's, uh, what's the update on that, Brent? Yeah, so just uh, rolling through here real quick. I'm going to find some wins from our new heights segment that we do every Wednesday, but people still keep popping it in even after Wednesday. So let me just find a good win here. Let's see here. Sinead McGarry says, I was asked to host a songwriting workshop by a local community group. Yay, I get to talk for two hours about my favorite thing and learn how others do it too. So uh, Sinead has gotten hooked on workshops and all that good stuff and it gets to get to ask us some and get to lead some and host some. So anyway, that's a win because wins are all different kinds, man. If it's a music related win, we want to hear about it. And so congrats, Sinead, on reaching that uh, new height. There you go. And Brent and I are still hanging out there as much as we can, which is more often than not at the moment. I'm out of jail. Again, now, but so, you'll go, yes. you'll be back in shortly. Maybe I'm, I think I'm figuring it out. I got actually got an email from Facebook or a chat because I'm asking them, like, why do I keep getting thrown in Facebook jail? And why can you help me, you know, not tick you off? Help me help you. Yeah. And they basically said, no, we can't tell you why it's against Don't policy. You that? You're just, you're just going to <laughs> Because jail, we are bro. constantly changing and therefore to provide the best experience. So therefore it's against policy to tell you why you <laughs> yeah. got thrown in Facebook jail <laughs> because who knows, it may be a different reason tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume podcasts. Leave a rating and review, which we're about to read one of those off. And this, uh-huh. this is gonna this is gonna be great. And finally, tell somebody about it. Hey, if this stuff helps you out, if you learn something, please, that's the best way that you can kind of spread the word. We're doing this because we want you to win. We put time and effort into it. And and if you like it, somebody else could like it too. So on to that review here. Mm-hmm. Well, this is from Parsies, and it is a uh, crinkly. Two-star review, not a tasty, it's crinkly. And it says, the technical quality of podcast audio. So, it says, well, I listen to several podcasts regularly and I've listened to several more. I'm not sure what that means. Anyway, the Climb has, hands down, the worst audio I've heard on a podcast. Both host <laughs> voices sound like they're in the bathroom. I wish I could insert like a flushing sound. Use some basic, inexpensive acoustic treatment, yo. All the audio is hyper, way over the top compressed. That's just how Johnny sounds in real life. He's just hyper, way over the top. Anyway, (laughs) limited, way back off the limiting. There's continuous nasty distortion, most likely attributable to the hideous use of the limiter and bad gain staging. The files sound like 96 KBS MP3s or worse. Use 320 KBS MP3s for crying out loud. It is unlistenable, which is a shame because the content is good. And they want to increase their listenership? I have an idea. Let a good audio engineer fix the audio. Good grief. Well, thank you, Parsies. I bet you're fun to hang out with at parties. And I think we might have a producer amongst us, an audiophile. 
Quite possibly. Oh yeah. Um, the so I don't know if you listened to the first couple episodes, but they were worse. So do yourself yeah. a favor and go back and listen to episodes zero, one, and two, and three, and four, and it'll really blow your doors off. But thank you for being honest with us. That's right. Hey, we can always listen. I did back off with a limiter, by the way, after he said that. So he was right about that. I, had I don't even know what else. any of that means. It was different. And I just, I get busy and then I forget to back it off. And then it goes around from employee to employee. But anyway, so let's get to the <laughs> That's um, right. We read them all. That's right. Yeah, we're not afraid. We'll take it on the chin. We always got stuff to learn. You that's know, right. we always got stuff to learn. I don't know about the distortion. I don't think I've ever heard any distortion unless it's like the connection going out or something. Well, I don't know either, but I think everything's fine. <laughs> Actually, do hey, you notice how this us? came in after we brought Chelsea on board? I don't know. I'm just saying. The distortion came in after Chelsea came? I don't know. I just got the review after we brought Chelsea on board to help, you know. The, oh, I'm just kidding. Che- I'm just awesome. <laughs> just kidding, Chelsea. She'll be the one editing this, so that'll be awesome. <laughs> Take that right out. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, without further ado, we want to welcome Mr. Chris Mara, the owner of Welcome to 1979 to the Climb Podcast. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you that on the episode where we get a review about bad audio, we bring on someone who is all about some great audio. Yeah, I've, I've hooked up my Vantage M49 to a Neve Pre into my laptop, so we've got the best audio possible. There we go. So, Oh, he's got the best mic chain for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's for Dupree's or whatever the, the guy was. So I want to tell you about this facility, guys, and, and kind of tell you about the space, especially if you are in Nashville or Nashville adjacent or if it's drivable. This is a – I think this is one of the coolest resources – for any indie artist out there. And I mean, the pricing is completely affordable. This guy's super cool. He came into my awareness. Originally, Chris, I found out about you from a mutual friend of ours, Tim Craven, who's a great producer and uh, been a friend of mine for a while. And Tim's a big audiophile analog guy. And so welcome to 1979 is one of many things that we're going to cover in this podcast today, but first, the first way that I heard about it was it's an analog recording studio and two inch tape. We're talking reel to reel, even on the, the quarter inch tape machine, stuff like that. A great space to cut your, especially your rhythm tracks, your drum and your, your bass tracks. And the way that I got connected with Chris, I'd heard about, it. so that's how I got, became aware of you. And then, you know, we talked to the podcast before I just recently lost my mom and we are just, my sisters and I are helping clean up some stuff for my dad at the house there. And we, my dad runs across this box of little real, what kind of tapes were those, Chris? Like what's the official, it's not two inch tape. It's, there's a quarter inch tape. Quarter inch tape. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's, it's quarter inch real, real tape from back. Uh, and they call them letters to home. And it's back when my dad was in Vietnam and you would get a shot to go into this machine on whatever, you know, wherever your camp was or whatever the base was and record an audio sort of letter to your parents or to your family. And then these tapes are about maybe a little bit bigger than a silver dollar. So they're kind of small. And uh, the box that they slide into has actually got like an address to send the physical tape home to your parents. So they know that you're doing okay over at the war and stuff like that. My dad had a box of these tapes and he's like, Hey, how's the war going, honey? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I know that you're doing okay over at the war. My dad was like, can you get these transferred to digital? Is there a way that we can do that? And I'm like, yeah, I think I know where I need to go. So I kind of reached out to Chris and he was like, yeah, man, come on in. Let's talk. Let's see what you got going on. And, and that's how our relationship started. 
it's 27 tapes that they transferred, which was kind of interesting. Got them on a hard drive and everything. But I dropped the box off and I was just like, I don't want to be a pain in the arse, but can I just walk around this place? Because this is like, <laughs> if you're a musician or if you're a tech head or if you are, even if you're a songwriter, like this is the place to be. We're visually, it's fantastic. On the audio level, obviously, it's fantastic. And we're going to talk about Chris's record collection of over 1,200 albums that is right there present in that you can kind of go through it and, and look at. But Chris, how did you get into this? Uh, oh, and I forgot to mention, Chris is from the mothership too. He's from Wisconsin. So right off the bat when I met him, of course, I loved him. That's, uh, you know, salt of the earth kind of stuff. But what got you from Wisconsin down to Nashville? And one final accolade is you are one of the biggest, if not the biggest restorer of analog tape machines. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So he's got a whole room, like a whole part of that is a 14 plus thousand square foot space that this, that this business occupies and one major room and there's just nothing but these old MCI real, real tape machines, two inch tape that you do multi-track recording on. So tell us how you got into that, bro. Um, well, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, milk and cows kind of gives you a lot of motivation to find something else to do. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i moved to to nashville when i was 19 or 20 to get an an internship at a recording studio and that turned into a job as an assistant engineer and then i started assisting at about 15 different studios in town and that's then i started engineering you know just the natural progression right Mm -hmm. any notable projects that you were working on yeah, I, I got kind of slung into assisting on a bunch of big records right off the bat. I got teamed up with Billy Walker Jr. Oh, cool. And kind of at the height of his production career. So at the same time, I'm working on a Brian White record and a Pam Tillis record and a John Barry record, you know, and I'm 21 years old and kind of right, right in there, which just gave me a lot of insight to everything. And then I started engineering a lot of stuff. Hold on. Uh, slow down a little bit. Explain that. Expand on that a little bit. So it'll give you a lot of insight into everything. What are some of like the top three things that you learned that you can remember that, that really directed, that changed your life moving forward from being in that space and being in that environment? I assisted on records for about four years and assisting basically is all the prep work on a session. So I'm there the night before at this, you know, this point in my life till midnight or one in the morning. And then once everything's up and rolling on the session, I'm just getting paid to like observe and watch and just make sure everyone's happy. So I got to just watch how sessions go. And I really wanted to take away a positive and negative from every, every day I worked. I just looked at it as a buffet of how to learn how to make records. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And there's a million ways to do it. Right. So I want to say, okay, that's, that's something I want to do. That's something I don't want to do. So I guess the biggest takeaway that I got was I worked with producers like Billy who all they cared about is the artist's experience and the song and how can I make this better? And then I worked with a lot of other producers who produced how they wanted to produce and the artist was like a byproduct. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or a hindrance or a means to an end. And that seemed to be the, the two lanes I saw a lot of. So obviously I, I went towards, you know, engineering and producing for the artist and whatever they want to do, I do. So that's, 
That's yeah, so do you think that was a function of on the negative side of that? Do you think that was what do you attribute that to? I know there's some producers, let's say like Mutt Lang, who have definitely like a fingerprint on how they do things and they're going to do it that way, whether the artist likes it or not. And then I would imagine that you must have encountered some producers who got a gig working with an artist that maybe they just didn't particularly like or maybe they were particularly in a bad space. You know, I mean, Jack Douglas was producing records and he kind of went down the toilet with heroin for a little bit after because he was such close friends with John Lennon and right. it just tore him apart. And so maybe they were like, you know, in some bad part of their life or like, what do you, what do you think was going on with the when it wasn't more about the artist where the artist was, I think the word you used was like a byproduct of or some sort of function of what they had to do. Yeah, I think. And this is my 20 year old eyes. Right. But I think it was more about. I got hired to do my thing and you're, you're a part of that. Or as I got older, I started realizing a lot of people engineered or produced based on their skill sets. And I don't know how to track a whole band on a console. So I prefer to make records one instrument at a time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I really took that with me in, into how I want to be an engineer. And, and my, you know, I challenged myself to be able to engineer any way the artist wants at the top of my game and because I, I i got to work with engineers and producers who would change how they produced based on how the artist wanted to work and i always i saw that and i was like man like one day they did it like this the next day they did it like this that to me is a true passion for your craft and then that's where i set my sights trying to find the art and maybe it's a little less egocentric yeah. yeah how do you want to record and then you talk about how you how you most of the time when i ask artists that how do you want to do this record they start talking to me about how they didn't want to record on the last record they don't have an answer to how they want to do it but they know how they don't want to do it and, and that's still clues right mm -hmm. <laughs> those yeah. are some of the bodies that are buried that helps you uh yeah that helps you that's funny because um if you read the stories and the sort of lore behind Guns N' Roses' first record, Appetite for Destruction, they were shopping for producers and had gone through a number of different producers that they just didn't end up liking. Um, one of the most notable was Paul Stanley. Mm. And they were coming in trying to be like the big producer with the rookie band. And they were, whatever it was that they were saying and, and wanting to do wasn't consonant with the way the band felt about it. And Mike Klink, you just said this, that's what made me think of it. Mike Klink was the first one that came in and said, okay, so what do you guys want to do? <laughs> like here's what we want to do and he's like okay and he pressed record <laughs> and created like the you know the biggest debut to this day the biggest debut record of any i think any artist in the history of the music industry yeah and i think i think the confidence for me comes from you mentioned mutt Lang earlier yeah his records are great obviously right and then the record we're talking about now is a great record it's how do you want to get there or how does the artist want to get there because mm -hmm. uh, i've talked to enough artists and it's like I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of artists. I'm like, man, I love that record you did. And they're like, yeah, it's okay. And you talk to them a little bit about it. And they're like, well, I didn't have a good time making that record. So I don't personally like that record. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so good friend. Do you know Dave Fowler at all? No. Mm -mm. Bass player? Not that he should. I just wondered if he'd been in there. But good friend of mine, bass player. I've never, I've known him forever. When I lived out in LA for like 15 years. And every time Dave would come out, he'd stay with me. And I never met more rock stars than I have hanging around Dave. Like he's just that yeah. guy, you know, he's everywhere. He's, he's played forever. And he 
I think he still owns a magazine called Base Frontier Magazine. And he was out there this particular time in LA doing interviews for the magazine to get content. One of the interviews was with, and so this is what a day with, with Dave would be like, hey, Johnny, man, we're going to go interview some people today. You want to come hang out? I'm like, who are you interviewing? He's like, Randy Meisner from the Eagles. And then we're going to go talk to Don Felder. And then, um, I don't know, maybe like, you know, I'm like, what? Like, yeah, I'm going to come hang yeah. out. Hold yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll and so. There. Yeah, so we were in, um, I can't remember the name of the studio in Santa Monica. Brian Wilson started it, but I'm sitting in the room, like literally I can reach out and touch Don Felder. I'm just off camera. And he was explaining that same situation with, I think this is one of the biggest riffs. And I think there's a lot of riffs when it comes to Don Henley, because he's just kind of like a, (laughs) he's like a hard ass, I guess a little bit, but he was talking about how Don had a certain way. He was the perfectionist guy. And Felder was more of the man, like we got a vibe. We just got to take, let's do it. And Don's like, nah, you know, on the second chorus, I didn't hit the kick just right. So I want to recut it. And he's like, you know, on one hand, you can't argue with Don because those records sold millions and millions Mm -hmm. of records. But on the other hand, like he was saying, I didn't have a good time making them doing that. So that's, that's interesting. At what point, do you think this brings up another just a kind of a creative question, but what do you do in a certain situation where you know that maybe the artist thinks that they want something, but maybe you know that that's a bad road to go down, right? That what they're wanting is, is from a, a place of naivete. Do you have to go down there with it? Because the only way out for that artist to understand is through at the risk of them getting done saying, I don't like this or. It's hard. No, I do it every time, every time. It's because the studio is a place to get questioned answered. On stage, you just have to do what you're supposed to do, right? Because mm-hmm. right? you have an audience. But the studio is meant to ask questions and get answers. So one of my pet peeves is people talking about how something might sound. <laughs> discussing a theory. And it's like, you know, we've been talking about this for 15 minutes. Let's just do, we could have done it in 10. Yeah. And then at the end of it, I'm always thinking about the end. And at the end, I want the artist to say, I don't want them to hear that and go, man, I wonder what that shaker would have sounded like or what that thing would have sounded like instead of going, yeah, I tried that and I didn't like it. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. The studio is a place to ask questions to get answers. Yeah. With no one around. It's like, this is what it's all for. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you know, you want to leave knowing that it's the way you want it. Not, should that be up at DB? Well, let's listen. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's better. Or no, it's not. Okay. Boom. Put it back down. That's it. Yeah. Or, or run a mix with it the way it is and run another mix with it up at DB and then live yeah. with it and see which one you want. Yeah. yeah. My job is to say yes. There you go. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So we're coming in on, I want to talk, well, I'll tell you what, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your restoration services, because this is, again, it's like a 14,000, this is a massive two floor, it looks like a big old warehouse, and you walk in and a huge part of this room are these, it's like a graveyard of, <laughs> oh, as MCIs, is that what you're doing? We're specializing, yeah. Yeah, the MCI, they specialize in MCI two, two inch tape. And how'd that happen? Like, was that just built out of your love for analog? Yeah, I mean, kind of everything I do and that I, now that I walk around and look at, at what is here after 25 years of being in Nashville, you know, I started the studio because I couldn't find a studio that I liked well enough. So I built my own to feed a specific need, right? Mm-hmm. Not everyone likes the studio, but the people that like it love it, right? Yeah. And then that kind of bled into, I can't get a tape machine I want that works right, so I'm going to restore one. And then people that found the studio online or after the studio got pressed about what we're doing, they emailed and wanted a tape machine. And I was like, okay, I'll do one for you, and I'll do one for you. And, and then that turned into, now we do 60-some machines a year. Yeah. You know, it's its own co-business, not a side business. You know? Yeah. I do think it's a lot of my being naive it's like yeah i can do that <laughs> right <laughs> right i mean right not, you know who says i can't you know right. And that's right now it's the largest company like that in the world by far here's where i think this is cool i was thinking about this the other night i was thinking about you and so it's a good time to bring this up brian because i want to talk to you about this too but how long have we been talking about marketing on finding ways to bring the value back into music Right. Since like um, episode one, two. Yes. <laughs> two was your first episode. Episode two. Episode two. That's right. So yeah. what we had, I mean, just just overview, business overview. Let's go up to thirty thousand feet. Forget about the details for a second. Just get into, you know, nineteen seventy nine, Dan the Torpedoes came out. It cost eight dollars and ninety nine cents. Yeah. yeah. If you put that into an inflationary calculator, that is roughly around like little right around thirty bucks. Ten songs. So three bucks a song, right? And then, of course, the price went up to even 40 bucks or 42 bucks when we went to CDs because they doubled the price, right? And then we have the Napster thing that happens in 1999. Everybody's getting it for free. And so thank God for Steve Jobs who put a price back on music, but it was a crappy price to put back Mm. on music, but it was a price and he put 99 cents on it. So... Tom Petty's last record that he put out before he passed was 
God rest his soul, was, is on iTunes like everybody else is for $10.99. So there's a pricing issue there. And I've seen a number of people attempt to try to do this, but they still are sort of stuck in the old way of marketing and doing it that doesn't make sense. You saw um, pa- the Panos player from Neil Young came out and he, it's a brilliant idea. He's like, let's sell 192K 24 bit mixes, right? So a two mix is going to be like a gig. It's a big file, but in order to play it, you know, here's the genius of like Gillette, right? They, they give you the razors and sell you the blades. He's trying to sell people on the razor. He's, you got to buy this like clunky piece of crap thing that looks like a Toblerone player that only held so many things and that's the only way you can play it so it was like this big cool idea because it was a kickstarter thing that ultimately failed because he's requiring you to only have one place that you can use it as opposed to just let the software give them the software program so that they can play a 192k 24-bit track and make money remastering every single thing that's ever come out and it's going to be way better than in comparison, we're talking this, our audio guy who left the, <laughs> who left the comment. The, yes. I left the the comment on this conversation review. is, uh, I mean, uh, you know, to CD is a wave file is, is a uh, 16 bit 44.1 K that's 44,100 times a second that the music gets sampled. And so 192 gets 192,000 times a second, right? It's not analog, but it's way better than the CD. And then of course, MP3s are, are way less, right? So here's my point. You saw title come in and title is their whole big thing is better streams, better quality streams, but they're marketing it based on the sort of like on the tech part of it, which consumers don't care about. Like this guy who left mm-hmm. that review is the guy that gets pissed off that why are we even bother recording in, in Pro Tools HD or going to, you know, Mara's place and uh, welcome to 1979 to record an analog when they're just going to dumb it down to MP3 anyway, it sounds like crap. Because they don't know. Yeah. Well, they don't know. So don't sell them on the quality of it, right? Sell them on the luxury of it. Like, you know, if you can be a jerk over there listening to MP3s, but we're over here listening to this stuff. That, well, just last week or the week before, I get an email from Amazon and they wanted to ask me if I wanted to up the price of my subscription to stream HD and super or ultra, ultra HD is what they're calling it, audio streams. And I'm like, yes, I do. What's that? And so the HD is, I believe, like a, just a WAV file that they're going to stream. And Ultra HD goes up to 24-bit, 96K, depending on whether or not your device can stream that. And I think, and mine can. Like I'm some of that stuff, like listening to freaking Fade to Black from Metallica, man, at, on Ultra HD is like that acoustic guitar in the beginning is badass. Chris, I'll have to check the uh, I'll have to check the label on the side of my tin can that I do most of my listening through. So <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, but in the car though, like in the car when you're pumping that, you know, like mm-hmm. it's you've got the big speakers. It's cool, dude. You can hear the difference. Um, I, maybe yeah. not so much in earbuds, but like in the car, like I'll do that. Or um, you know, I got studio monitors in the office now, and I listen through that. It's it, you can hear the difference. I think that puts you ahead of the curve, brother, because as so this is what they're doing. Like, you know, you can get it better if you want, it's going to cost you more. And then if they sell it right, more people will be doing that. And that's where the difference with 
being able to, to do analog at the beginning? Cause it's more than just the analog tape too. You have, what else do you have in there? You guys have a big selection of some vintage gear. Yeah. I mean, a nice console and nice microphones and, and a nice space and we can record on tape or pro tools. It doesn't matter to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, set up to do both equally well, like I mentioned earlier, um, as far as my ethos goes, but I think my job as a recording engineer is to capture it as best I can and mix it as best I can and let the artists and label decide how to put that out in the world. Whether it's MP3 on iTunes or Amazon or whatever, but I always want people to grow into a song like you did with Fade to Black. You're like, oh, now I'm experiencing it better than I did before versus... Yeah. I'm growing out of it. Now I heard this MP3 on a really good stereo system and it sounds like crap. Now I'm, now I'm tapping out. You know what I mean? Versus more engaged. Yeah. That's how I view it. I think that what you do is going to become, I, I think you're going to get even busier than you are, you know, because as people, as everybody else sort of follows suit with that and the industry starts to figure out that, you know, we've got to find a way to get the value, or let's say of a recorded song back from 99 cents to $3. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's going to solve a whole lot of problems, right? And people will pay it. We've paid it before. There's ways to do it. It just needs to be marketed right. So that's interesting. So another faction of what goes on there, Chris was walking me around this facility. And there's lots of these little rooms, Brent, that are like super cool. Little, like you got like a couch in and a couple tables. You got a game room in there, right? With like a foosball table and you know, pinball machine and They've got, it's, there's just these vibey little hangs, man, that are like perfect for recording content. And in today's market, it's all about content, 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 content. Mm-hmm. We've got to keep pushing out content. So I walked in there and at that, I think at the time that I came in to see you, we had just sort of kicked on this idea with one of our, our, our rock artists named Alora, and been struggling with her a little bit to try to find a way to market her. Uh, some of the things that we were doing just kind of weren't translating. She's just not the kind of artist that she doesn't play. So she's a great singer and a great writer, but she doesn't play. It's not her strong suit. And I was trying to get her to do cover songs to help us sort of reach an audience. And it wasn't really working on YouTube because she couldn't play. So I'm getting these karaoke tracks. They're just really weak and, and they're terrible and it just didn't work. So Finally, it clicks in. I see this killer uh, mashup from Pomplamoose. You ever see any of that stuff, Chris? Mm. The Pomplamoose mashup? Like, right, I'll send you some, man. It's like, I mean, a killer band, and they do some of the most wicked like mashups you can imagine, but they draw attention to the band. Mm. And I thought, oh, man, we're going to do a mashup with Alora. So we got a killer mashup recorded, and then I was like, we're going to do a little video for it, and I'm just trying to figure out where we're going to do it. And then that's like fate brings me to you. And so I'm walking around this place. But, guys, this is a great visual backdrop to record, I mean, any genre of music, to, to do some video stuff in there. And it's really inexpensive. I mean, it's, what is it, 95 bucks an hour, for, and you got to do three hours. And what? you can have whatever room you want in the whole place. You're, you're kind of running the place. It's, I'll post the video when we get it done. I'll post that in the climb community so everybody can kind of see what it looks like, but it is, it's cool, man. And there's different looks. I mean, you've got, what'd you call your office? That's like, you're never there. You're always in the office upstairs, but. Yeah, the, the office is kind of like the epicenter. Yeah. Cause I mean, the space just, it just kind of lives and breathes 1979. Like 
not store bought. Like the stuff is from thrift stores, you know, and yard sales. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he's uh, got a big old like executive desk, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. There. <laughs> there's so many. There's just like creatively from like a visual perspective, Brent. You can do anything in there. You can do anything and make it work and make it cool. And we're gonna do this creepy thing with with Alora. We mashed up Billy Eilish's bad guy with Seven Nation Army from White Stripes, and mm-hmm. this is gonna be a really killer mashup. And she sang her the fire out of it and just really did a good job. And we're gonna use this promoter tour coming up get people to come in early and, and want to go see what we're bringing to them and what a great way to do it. And inexpensive. I mean, I just think it's really cool, man. So I want to thank you for that. Oh yeah. And most, most artists book the studio on a day rate, which is more affordable and they come in to record and they'll bring a couple people with cameras. And like we talked about the bass player will get done with his thing and they'll just pull him or her kind of off into one of these little rooms or, cool couch with some lamps and shoot some video content for the Kickstarter campaign for YouTube, for their socials, whatever. And yeah, the making of video, which is always cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so it's all about kind of bang for the buck. They come out after a weekend or two or three days of recording or even a day with solid video content. Cause the fun thing about recording in a space that has a good visual background is you're doing the same song four or five times in a row. Right. Yeah. So the camera can change where they are and then edit together. It looks like a five person camera shoot. It's amazing. The stuff that gets shot here. So, you know, artists and bands that are really kind of, kind of looking into like really how to spend money that that's where we get the busiest to say, wow, we can come in for a weekend tracking over to our record and leave with a lot of video content, you know, killing two or three birds with one stone. And Mm -hmm. And they're factoring in their own time in the equation. They're doing something else. And this is happening in the background. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Time to do it. Right. Especially if you're doing like, if you're cutting the analog and you got to be splicing some stuff together, maybe. Right. Well, while that whole thing is going on or like, you know, to your point, while well, the bass tracks are done. So let's take you over here and we're optimizing every single second that we're spending money yep. and getting killer content, killer sounds and all of that. Do you ever do projects where people are sending you their digital are there, yeah, they're digital mixes and you slam them to like quarter inch tape? All the time. All the time. Yeah. Yep. Mainly the clients are either indie rock people from Brooklyn or somewhere in the Eastern block. That's the really, yeah. Yep. So nothing from LA like that. Is there not a whole lot? Mm -mm. Interesting. But uh, people will send us to us by our download link and I'll just take a day a week and do like 15 of them. And it'll be Brooklyn, Germany, Brooklyn, you know, Poland. Seriously, it's like. <laughs> that's, so. that's crazy. So, so what we're talking about, if you guys didn't pick up on that, is like when you're done with the record and you got your mixes, you want to add a certain amount of warmth to it, a certain amount of depth to it, make it a little rounder. You take those, he's going to take those mixes and he's going to record them to a, what would normally be a mix where the mix would go on a quarter inch reel to reel tape. And what do you, what's your normal process for doing that? Just from engineer speak, like plus three, you're hitting it at. Well, I just listen to each thing. I run them through my console. So I've got a couple of faders. I just listen to the machine and just push the faders until it does this thing I'm listening for. And then I print it. So there you go. You know. And so you get what happens is you get that tape compression in there and then it just adds a different sort of dimension sonically to it. And, and then, then you take the, the tape and go back to digital. Is that what you do? In one swoop. Yep. It goes out and back in. And then 
they send that to mastering and the mastering engineers love it. They're like, this is great. And we couple that with our mastering services too. So a lot of what we do mastering here, we have a whole mastering department as well. Hits tape first if the client wants. And it just, it does all the things that hardware is trying to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For real. And then, so when you run it through it too, you run it through the analog gear before it goes to tape? Uh, my console. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So. Very cool. And then, so this is fun. There's another big part of the building that is where you're physically pressing records. Well, we do the, we don't press records. We do, there's three. There's right, you three, do the acetates. Sorry. Yeah, there's three basic steps to making a record. And we're, we do the first two, which is vinyl mastering and what's called electroforming or electroplating, which makes the metal stampers that get sent to the pressing plant. So gotcha. there's, a, there's a big, and this again comes from like, I think I can do this better. Um, there's a huge correlation between when a master lacquer is cut and when it, it gets into the metal work. Because once the lacquer is cut, the quality starts degrading. So back in the 70s, it was commonplace to have final mastering, electroplating in the same street or in the same building. And now we're the only one in the country that does it. So <laughs> it was based on quality because like the studio that I built, Welcome to 1979, attracted rock and Americana artists mm-hmm. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, which were the first ones to do vinyl records. And then I heard my mixes or these projects on vinyl. I'm like, this doesn't sound like what we did. Right. Yeah. Kind of started into that whole area. So, yeah. So, we got, now we got to start a different part of the business because these yeah. guys are screwing it up. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, again, naivety. Yeah. I can do it better. And we, we are. So, that, that's kind of the business there. So, yeah, we have a 3,000 square foot, all new. We've been doing it three years, three and a half years, uh, electrocytic facility, the first of its kind. Uh, the other ones are 30, 40 years old. So, we've got the new technology coupled with the old methodology and it works great. So. And, and your ears, right? Like, are you, do you oversee all that? So you're putting your stamp of approval on it before they start creating the, doing the electroplating, like you've gone through, do they have to do the mastering with you or does sometimes you get stuff that's been vinyl mastered for vinyl yep. and you're we just cutting it. it? Okay. We get it all over the place. Our biggest, we get lacquers from all over, from Sterling, from Abbey Road, from wherever, because we, one of the best at it so they send us their stuff but the most common is like labels and pressing plants will just send us digital files and we can send them stampers the metal work so that's okay. the easiest thing and, and to answer your question directly uh, i don't oversee every project but the strongest point here is there's so many mastering engineers and recording engineers here that if there is an issue we all get together and listen and can identify what's going on and where it happens in the process. Because all, we all care about music. We're not just yeah. making you know? Yeah. That's yeah. what I love about it. You feel that, Brent, when you walk in. You know, you're just like, yeah. oh, this is, this is good. <laughs> they care. They yeah. care. Well, when I walked into the studio and a band is like, a few weeks ago, one of my favorite bands in here. And I walk in and they were sprawled out, shoes off, walking around. And it, it felt like they've been here a month and they were here about four hours. Yeah. And he was like, okay, this, I hit this thing out of the park. Yeah. Nice. You, you really just have that feeling that it's comfortable. Yeah. I mean, where, where else will you take your shoes off? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I got I, five kids. I don't even want to take my shoes off in my own house. <laughs> I wipe my feet to go outside. Yeah, come over, Brent. I'll sprinkle some Legos around. Some there shoes. you go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sprinkle Legos around for you. <laughs> I need to step on something sharp in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite. So, do you have any, like, I just on side note, do you have any tape delays there that you guys play around with? Like, Yep, I have a custom-made tape delay machine, which is awesome. So. Right on. All right, so finally, you got a record collection over 1,200 records, like top three records in that collection for you. Top three records. Uh, Purple Rain. Got to be. Uh, Tom Petty. Well, I consider the Tom Petty greatest hits as a record. I know that's controversy, but that's probably the top one. There you yeah. go. Okay. They, uh, they they put it out on vinyl to Dolby LP, but that I've listened to that greatest hit so many times. It's like a record to me. It's like a song. Yeah, yeah. You know, like every arrangement, every sound yeah. that goes on there. And then Ryan Adams' Gold is freaking phenomenal too. Yeah. Right on. Separating the artist from the art. You know, I know he's kind of a douchebag, but it's a really good record. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Did you ever see any shows at Alpine Valley when you were in Wisconsin? No, I got out of there, man. I just split. So okay. I, well, I just you know, going up in high school, and I know that'd be a long ride for you because you were northeastern, right? Uh, northwestern, yeah. Or northwestern, Eau Claire. Yep, north of Eau Claire. That's right. That's right. So you probably went and saw stuff. Maybe uh, where'd you go to see shows when you were growing up? In the cities. Um, yeah, yeah, Twin Cities. Yep. Okay. That's what I figured. Chris, like, if if anybody wants to, you know, come in and shoot some videos at your place, if they wanted. To- do some recording, some mastering, make a vinyl, whatever. What number do they need to get you on? Um, it's How can I contact you? Website's the best. Welcome to 1979.com. And 1979 is numerical? Correct. T-O-1979. We'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you go. Anything you want to add, Brent? I'm a lyricist. So I've been lost during most of this. I got lost during the bad review about our sonics, and I haven't <laughs> quite clawed my way back into the conversation since. Yeah. <laughs> so I just know musicians like to take their shoes off there and it sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a slide. There's a slide that goes to the second floor to the first floor. Ooh, now you have my attention. We'll Where's talk more off the air. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, join the clown community if you haven't done so already. It's again super active. Everybody's asking questions and getting answers in there from each other, as well as when Brent and I are chiming in. Subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and review, be honest. We're going to read it no matter what. And finally, tell somebody about it. If you like this stuff, if there's good content here, then let other people know. This podcast exists because we want you to win. So keep on climbing. And we'll see you at the top. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. Thank you. Had a blast. Yeah, man. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 